Welcome to Brandon Avat. We are delighted to have Connor Kianpur back on the show, and we're going to be talking about parental licensing. Connor, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Thanks for having me back on. So I wanted to start first by encouraging listeners to think about what it is that makes us want to license activities in the first place. So I'm going to be presenting Hugh LaFollette's argument from his seminal paper on licensing parents. So LaFollette says that, for instance, when it comes to a driver's license, the reason that we license individuals to operate motor vehicles has to do with three things. First, driving is an activity that puts innocent others at risk on the road if you're bad at it. Second, a certain level of competence is required to be able to drive well. Perhaps you have to know the rules of the road, you have to know how to operate a motor vehicle, things like that. And then finally, there has to be a moderately reliable procedure that helps public officials reliably predict whether somebody has the competence associated with driving. And so given that all three of these features are present in the case of driving, we think that licensing drivers is appropriate. So the question becomes, does parenting share these same sorts of features as driving? And so for the first sort of criteria, we have parenting being a morally hazardous activity because if you're a bad parent, you could really do a number on a child. Second, it seems as though there is a certain kind of competence that's required in order to be a good parent. So you might expect that good parents or like sufficiently good parents are individuals who have a certain level of emotional maturity, they're able to financially provide for their children, among other things. And then the last criteria for licensing activities is that of whether there exists a moderately reliable procedure that helps public officials predict whether individuals are going to be sufficiently good parents. So you might be wondering, do such procedures exist? And I think that such procedures do exist in the form of adoptive screening. So a lot of people have issues with saying that you could just adopt a child without having a background check done on them, without being made sure that they're able to financially support the child, etc. And so if we have this sort of system put in place when it comes to adoptive screening, why couldn't it also be the case that we could create sort of a parallel system when it comes to licensing the parents of biological children. And also, I'd like to make one clarification before we get into the discussion here. So there are two sorts of things that people could mean when they are talking about licensing parents. So the first, I would call something like reproductive licensing, making sure that you test somebody before they actually give birth to a child or they produce a child or something like that. Personally, I'm not partial to that line of conceiving of parental licenses. Rather, I think that we should think of parental licensing as a licensing scheme that would prevent individuals who have had a child from raising the child that they had if they do not pass the licensing test. So, yeah. It's a very bold position. I've just got these dystopian nightmares going through my head of you have your child and the state for whatever reason thinks that you won't be able to raise it well. 
and pulls that child screaming and kicking from your arms and says, you don't meet the means test and we're taking the child to raise it. But let's put like dystopian nightmares aside. I think it's quite nice the way you've you framed the discussion because we can discuss each of these three factors and whether they apply to children the way they do with a car. But before we discuss those three, and I think there are at least two of them where there's objections possible, I was wondering whether those three factors are really sufficient for saying that the state should have a stake involved here. So in the case of a car, it seems like it, those three factors are sufficient. It seems in the case of a car, if there are innocents involved who could be harmed if we didn't license correctly, and if competence is required, and if there's procedures that can predict that competence, then we those seem together to operate sufficiently for whether we should license people to, to drive cars. But I wonder if that's the case for children. It seems like those might be necessary for thinking that licensing is required, but not sufficient. You might need more in the case of children to make the case. So what is it about the case of children that gives you reason to believe that there's something different going on? I think that in the case of children, you've got some sort of magic formula involved that you don't with a car. So with the car, you don't feel love towards the car in the way you would for a child. You don't feel an intimacy with the fetus at, during your pregnancy. You don't feel a bond with the child, with the car, the way that you would with a child. And those factors together with all the complexities of raising the child that are not present when raising a car. The car is like, do you drive it into the ground and damage it or do you maintain it? It seems like raising a child is far more complex. It's not just about do you produce a well-balanced child or not. It's more, there's so many ways that firstly you could go wrong, but also there, there's so many grays here and there's so many, there's such, it's such a rich tapestry to raising a child in a way that it's not for a car. And it seems like all of those factors need to be included as well. And just seems like just those three are too, are too simplistic when it comes to children. Yeah, great. So another distinction that I'd like to introduce here is between parental licensing schemes that are aimed at ensuring that parents are the best available parents for the child in question and parental licensing schemes that are just trying to make sure that the especially bad parents do not become parents to children. So I think you're right that if we're trying to set up a licensing scheme such that we're trying to ensure that children are raised by optimal parents, whatever that is, that the concern about like the magic formula associated with parenting does ring true there. But if we're conceiving of a parental licensing scheme as being aimed at something that is supposed to ensure that a child is not going to be raised by a parent that violates their rights, then we can, I think, point out certain kinds of behaviors that give us reason to believe that a parent is going to be abusive to a child. And if we are reasonably confident over a certain threshold that the parent does possess certain attributes that places a child at risk, that it's not as complicated as you're making it out to be. And second, a second line of response is you were talking a lot about the intimacy that parents feel for children and like the fellow feeling, the investment that they have and how that might complicate the picture for parental licensing. And this response that I'm going to give only goes so far, but I think that it's worth mentioning, which is that denying somebody a driver's license, depending on who they are, could really 
mess up with their life plans. If they're the type of person who lives in a super rural area or something like that, and the driver's license represents like their opportunity for being able to pursue a career that they want to pursue. It seems like the sorts of like emotional investment that you're pointing to in the case of parenting is at least present to some degree when it comes to driving for some people, but we don't think that the existence of that complication is enough to say that we shouldn't license drivers at all. So a couple of things we're thinking about. The first is in the driver's license case. It seems that if you fail your driver's license, that there are steps you can take to resolve the situation. You can become a better driver through through study, through practice, and it might be that you're forced to endure a delay, which is uncomfortable because you can't drive, but eventually you can take the steps necessary to become a driver. In the regime that you posit, the idea is that you there's no restriction on falling pregnant. It's not like the state gives you a morena once you turn 13 and then says you've got to apply to have it removed. That is, no, no, you're free to fall pregnant. It's just that at that juncture, we're going to evaluate you and see whether you're going to keep your kid. And if you fail, the state has confiscated your child. Now, that seems like an, a huge magnitude of suffering that you would endure because you didn't meet the ideological sets of the state or whatever its means test is. You're too poor, you're too gay, you're too much of a Jew, whatever it is that the state has decided, you know, we're uncomfortable with you people being able to raise children, so we're taking away your child seems different to the car case. The other thing I want to say in your favor is that I think people are going to be supportive of the idea of the state being able to confiscate people's kids under certain circumstances. The social security agencies will evaluate existing parents and say, listen, you sold your kid's kidney, you put them into indentured labor, you beat them three times a day, and they're basically part of a Monty Python sketch. We don't think it's in this kid's interest to have you to continue to raise them. I'm sorry, social services intervening and we're going to put your kids into the institution. They're going to be raised by someone else. And I think there's going to be some threshold where people say, yeah, your right to raise your own kid cannot be absolute. There's a point at which you've done something so despicable to that child that we want to stop that. Your case is a probabilistic one where you want to say, you seem like the kind of person that would be a bad parent. You're a junkie, you're a racist, and that stuff we're uncomfortable with. So before we like give you the right to drive a car on and check, see how it goes, um, we're going to say, no, you've had, you've given birth to the kid, but we're taking that away from you straight away before you cause any harm. And we've got a wonderful set of foster parents who will do a much better job of you. One of the things I'm interested in is, do you think that people have some kind of natural right to their offspring? And that's got to be beaten by facts. You've got to have some really good argument for setting it out. Or is this an irrelevant consideration that you're biologically related to this person? Yeah, I think you're getting at like the crux of the issue, which is that the sort of difference that people often point to between the case of licensing drivers and the case of licensing parents is that presumably licensing parents could infringe on or violate the right that individuals have to raise children generally or their biological children specifically, whereas no such parallel right exists in the case of driving. My view is that individuals do not have a right to raise children generally, nor do they have a right to raise their biological children in particular. And the reason for that is because <clears throat> I take child-centered accounts of child-rearing rights to be true. 
So that's a mouthful. What does that mean? A child-centered account of child-rearing rights holds that the only thing that is relevant to determining whether somebody has the authority to be the parent of a child is the interests of the child. This sort of position contrasts with dual accounts of child rearing rights, which maintain that there are two considerations that are relevant to determining whether somebody should have the authority to be the parent to a child. The first set of considerations is the interest of the child, but the second set of considerations is the interest that the parent has in raising the child. Um, and my view is that dual accounts of child rearing rights do not actually work. They don't vindicate the sorts of conclusions that they set out to. So just to give you an idea of why I think this. So there are two accounts of, two dual accounts of child rearing rights that are popular, at least in the philosophical literature. And I think that they also capture a lot of intuitions that people have about child rearing in general. So the first account is S. Matthew is by S. Matthew Lau, who argues that individuals have a right to raise their biological children because individuals have an interest in seeing and shaping the growth of an individual whom they created that has genetic material that they share with that individual. And my contention is that it's perfectly possible for somebody's right to see and shape the growth of their biological child to be protected without ceding that they likewise have a right to exercise global authority over that child's life. So Anka Gauss, in her paper, The Best Available Parent, she does something that I take to be brilliant, which is she separates like two sets of that are bound up in child rearing. So the first set of interests are like interests in controlling the life of the child in question. Second are interests in associating with the child in question. And it seems like just by protecting the associational rights of the biological parents of children, you would be protecting the only right that they could be claimed to have, which is a protected relationship with their child. But just because they have a right to a protected relationship with their child doesn't mean that they have the right to exercise global authority over that child's life, deciding where that child goes to school, where that child lives, what that child eats, etc. The second sort of dual account, which doesn't dual account of child rearing rights, which doesn't take biological relatedness to be between parent and child to be necessary for generating a right to parent a particular child, is Harry Brighouse and Adam Swift's account that they outline in their book, Family Values. So according to Brighouse and Swift, they say that uh, parents have, or prospective parents, have an interest in developing the sorts of virtues that are associated with being a parent and in experiencing the joys associated with the distinctive parent-child relationship, particularly in the early years of childhood when a child is particularly vulnerable to their parents. Um, and again, it seems that 
the interests that Brighouse and Swift are pointing to justify a right to exercise global authority over a child's life could actually be protected by respecting the right of the parent to associate with their child, to be able to have a protected relationship with the child. So I think that given that child-centered accounts of child-rearing rights are true, and that dual accounts of child-rearing rights can only vindicate a modest conclusion about how parents have rights to protected relationships with their children, there is no right to parent that would be infringed or violated or risked by implementing a parental licensing. Can you put it that way? It sounds very plausible. Why would someone have a right to the life of this being who shares some genetic material with them. When you put it that way, it, it sounds quite compelling. Of course, one could reframe the relationship, right? So you could say, surely a parent who has felt a being inside them for nine months and grown them inside them and held them as they came out of their womb, surely they have some right there. And you can say it's a right of association and not a right to, to global control of the child's life. And I understand that, but I just think the framing of the problem is going to change your intuitions here. I've got another objection though. If you have a child-centered account and only the child's interests matter, are, is that a maximizing account that you hold? So is your account that you should maximize the child's well-being and we should make choices as the state about who raises that child that maximizes the child's well-being? And I've got a follow-up question depending on your answer. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. So I guess I'm going to give like an annoyingly philosophy answer to that question, which is that while I'm confident that some version of a child-centered account of child-rearing rights is true, I'm still trying to figure out what version of a child-centered account of child-rearing rights I believe is true. Um, so the two sorts of accounts that seem like live possibilities that people have talked about in the literature are on the one hand, the best available parent account. So people like Peter Valentine and Anka Gauss, they subscribe to this sort of count, account, which as you were suggesting in your question is focused on like maximizing the protection of the child's interests. But then you could likewise be a sufficientarian about what children are owed. And so you could say that children's interests are the only things that matter in determining who rears them, but that once you meet a certain threshold of protecting or promoting their interests, then that suffices. One reason to think that like we should prefer sufficientarian rather than the best available parent account of child rearing rights is, as we were discussing earlier, that it's not clear how the state could institute a parental licensing scheme that would make sure that the parents that are raising children are optimal parents for those children. But at the same time, I think that it might be possible, I'm not sure though, that it might be possible for the best available parent account of child rearing rights to be true, but for practical reasons associated with the implementation of a parental licensing scheme, all the state could get away with implementing is a sufficientarian licensing scheme.
So I, I think this distinction is excellent and presents a real dilemma for the child-centered accounts. So either it's a sufficientarianist account or it's a maximizing account. It's the best available parent. Now, if it's the best available parent, just think about the consequences of that. So a child is growing up with certain parents, say biological parents, who raise the child for 10 years. And the utility calculator steps in and they receive a mail in the post that says, we've calculated that although your child is very happy, they, they, they're very happy by many measures. They do well in school. They're healthy. You bring them up in a way where they're sufficiently happy. We've found a match in another country or in another city, another state, or three blocks down. And we feel that we could slightly increase the utility of this child in the long run. They'll be upset for a few weeks, but that family has a bit more money. That family, although your child is happy, might be slightly happier. The bond between those parents is slightly better and more functional. And the utility calculator has decided that we should move your child. Now on the maximizing account, on the best parent account, you should just do that, right? It is in the interest of the child. And that sounds to me crazy, right? It's just, it sounds to me like you're severely stepping on someone's rights or freedoms and really hurting the feelings of someone, namely the parents. And something very wrong has happened there, even if everything you the utility calculator is saying is correct. Now, here's the kicker. The kicker is you could say, all right, then I'll fall back on the sufficientarianist account because that account does not involve the implication that you should move the child. Okay. But now my question is, if all that matters is the child's interests, then what possible argument can you give for the sufficientarianist account? Because all that matters is that utility calc, nothing else. It doesn't matter whether the parents, the original parents are hurt or not. And that seems to miss a crucial point. It misses the point that those parents are going to be utterly devastated. You're going to destroy these bonds. And that's going to have severe negative consequences on the parents. But on that account, that doesn't matter. So there's two objections there. The one is there's... It, seem, it seems like there's no argument for why that shouldn't matter. But secondly, the, it seems like it does matter, right? It's, it seems like when you think about that, some heinous, horrendous crime has happened. So I'm not sure either type of child-centered account could work. So the two horns of the dilemma, as I understand it, and I don't think either of the horns actually succeed at creating a dilemma. <laughs> so... The first horn says that if we accept the best available parent account of child rearing rights, we'll have to accept uh, this implausible conclusion that if we were to find out that a child would be better served by being raised by parents different than the ones that they are currently being raised by, that it would be acceptable to basically reshuffle custody of children and that's not sort of just thing. acceptable but obligatory right yes the second horn of the dilemma is if the only thing that matters is the interests of children why shouldn't we be maximizers when it comes to protecting and promoting the interests of children so in response to the first horn of the dilemma which by the way, Liam Shields, he makes this argument against the best available account of parenting, child-rearing rights. And uh, I don't think that objection succeeds because as Anka Gauss writes in her paper on the best available parent account, 
she says that one of the things that's like crucially important for a child is that the individual who is their parent has their right to parent like securely held. Like children have an interest in continuity of care, a very strong interest in continuity of care at that. And given that, like practically speaking, the reshuffling of ch child custody in the way that you've outlined would involve disrupting continuity of care and potentially creating psychological problems for the child in question. Um, that seems like reason enough to think that we have a child-centered reason to think that reshuffling custody would not be appropriate and would in fact be impermissible in a lot of cases. In response to the second horn of the dilemma, I just don't see why that's an issue. If as a matter of justice, anybody, not just children, are entitled to a sufficient amount of like goods, resources, et cetera, in liberal society. And like the sufficientarian position, even though a lot of people do have problems with it, it seems like a pretty plausible and widely accepted position, especially in the public imaginary. It seems to me like we could just say, even if we say that only the interests of children matter, if all anybody is owed, is like a sufficient amount of goods and resources to be able to exist in liberal society. I don't see why we should think that we would have to maximize. I just want to push a little harder on that. So the thing that's missing there is the parents' feelings or thoughts or freedoms or rights on this at all or interests. So it's on your view that it's totally arbitrary whether the utility calculator pushes the child here or there if the child's interests are served equally. Yes, I understand the case that children want, they want continuity of parentage, they want to be raised in the same home, they want stability, but we can imagine that we can balance the calcs, right? So maybe it's quite a lot better somewhere else such that the loss in, in continuity is offset in the long run by these benefits with these other parents. Or perhaps we give that we slip the child a, a drug that makes them forget their original parents. Or perhaps we implant false memories in them that make them believe that they were raised by these other parents. And on in those cases, on your view, nothing bad has happened when you move the child from the one home to the other. Something good has happened because that child's interests are being slightly better served. And it totally ignores the enormous harm that has happened and the relationships that have been destroyed. But it doesn't seem to me that... Okay, could you repeat the first part of what you were talking about? I had a response. I can't because I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> the porter's going to have to chop this out. But okay, I think the first part of what I was saying is just that parents matter right? And this doesn't take into, take that into. I think that the reason that people think that parents matter, and maybe this is cynical of me, is that people take themselves to own their children, to have property rights in their children. And they view their children as their legacies. They project a lot of expectations onto their children. It's a very, I think for a lot of parents, not like necessarily a majority of parents or something like that, but 
there seems to be like a bit of narcissism <laughs> that motivates somebody to become a parent and become so invested in their projects as a parent. And I think that just because somebody believes that their child is like their legacy or that their child came from them and therefore they're the person that knows that child the best, one's thoughts about those matters don't change matters of fact about whether they would actually threaten the interests of their child. The woman who has Munchausen syndrome by proxy, no matter how much she thinks she cares about her child, she should not be allowed to continue rearing her child. So one of the prevalent legal standards that you find in common law systems is the idea that you should do what's in the best interest of the child. So there's a famous American case of Jehovah's Witnesses. Their child was in a car accident and required a blood transfusion to survive, and the parents refused to provide permission on the grounds that they took a religious prohibition on the idea of blood transfusion, said it's better for the child to die. And the doctors intervened, they took the parents to court on an urgent basis, and the court ruled, we are the upper guardian of all minors, anyone under the age of 18 falls under our purview, and it is in the interest of this child to, instead of dying, and took away the parent's ability to block the transfusion. And I think a lot of people are going to say that was the reasonable thing to do. But we can imagine a different situation, which is that the state, let's say, has a particular view of what it would be to be a perfect citizen and has a perfectionist account of the right kinds of activities that you should engage in, the right kinds of beliefs you should have. And parents that have different views are then told, you can't raise your kid with this religion. You can't get your kid to do these sports. You have no such rights. And then we start to get uncomfortable. Then we start to think, hold on, I'm the one who's looking after this kid. Don't I have some right to choose what kind of life they have? Obviously, the, my, my choices are limited to an extent because it is a separate being. But it seems like there are certain things that we think parents ought to be able to do with their children. If they don't have full property rights over them, maybe they have some kinds of rights over them. Certainly, I think parents have rights over their children, but those rights are bounded by the interests of the child. So any sort of exercise of authority over the child's life has to be justified by appeal to the child's interests. But I wanted to talk a little bit about certain people with certain views not being able to raise parents. I think that actually there are certain kinds of people that in fact do exist that do not have a right to parent because of particular kinds of views that they subscribe to. So I call these individuals objectionably intolerant individuals. There are different ways of understanding bigotry. There are like people who might be casually racist or casually sexist or homophobic, or they might have certain kinds of backwards views, but they don't really negatively affect other people around them in their lives. But there's a certain kind of person, and I classify these as strong racist, strong sexist, strong homophobes, who are intolerant of different ways of life to a sufficiently high degree that we have reason to believe that their beliefs are going to infringe upon or violate the rights of the children that they're raising. So I'm going to talk about for the purposes of our discussion, strong homophobia. Samantha Brennan and Colin MacLeod, they have this paper called Fundamentally Incompetent, in which they argue that individuals who are strongly homophobic, they do not have a right to raise children 
because there is a non-trivial chance that any of their children could be gay. And given that, strong homophobes, upon finding out that a child of theirs is gay, would withdraw effective care from the child. And they claim that children have a right to effective care. That is, they have interests so strong in being loved by their parents that it justifies a right that their parents express love in certain ways to them. And given that strong homophobes run the risk of withdrawing effective care from any of their children, any of whom could grow up to be gay, we have reason to think that strongly homophobic individuals do not have a right to raise children. Another line of thought advanced by Ricardo Spatorno is that he argues children have a right to be loved unconditionally by their parents. And his conception of unconditional love is a bit wonky, but I think it's intuitively plausible. So he grounds the right that children have to be loved unconditionally in the value of self-respect. So the thought is that it is by being unconditionally loved by our parents, at least in part, that we grow to see ourselves as valuable individuals. And some a parent who doesn't unconditionally love their child, for Spatorno, would be a parent who conditions their love for their child on the child possessing certain characteristics that are morally irrelevant. So for instance, uh, a racist parent who raises a white child would be violating, so let's assume that the racist parent is racist against Black people. The strongly racist parent who raises a white child would be violating the right to that child, the right that child has to unconditional love because the child knows that were they Black, the parent would not think that they are worthy of respect or meriting value or something like that. And that sort of belief could tarnish a child's ability to respect themselves when they grow up. Uh, the third line of reasoning that I think would give us some reason to think that objectionably intolerant parents are not fit to rear children has to do with the associational rights that I believe children have. Consider the following case. A child of adoptive parents, the parents divorce, and the child is granted, the, one of the parents is granted full custody over the child, and the other parent has visitation rights with the child. I think that most people would think that under ordinary circumstances, the child has a right to associate with both parents, even if only one of them is granted full custody over the child. And not just because the parent has an interest in associating with the child, but presumably because the parent's association with the child fits with the child's interests in the right sort of way, whatever that is to you. If you think that's the case, then it seems that if there were some person who wasn't the parent of the child, but was relevantly similar to the parent of the child, 
who was granted visitation rights but not full custody of the child, that the child would have associational rights with respect to that person who wasn't their parent as well. And so if children have interests weighty enough to generate associational rights with individuals who aren't their parents, then it's my thought that if a child comes to associate with somebody who is Black or gay or a foreigner or something like that, but the parent of the child is strongly racist or homophobic or sexist or something like that, that parent would prevent that child from continuing an association that child has a right to be in. So I think for those three sets of reasons, we have a good argument for thinking that children have a right not to be raised by people who are strongly racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. So I imagine the immediate concern that people will have is this idea of who gets to determine what those terms mean. The term racist we know is one of those terms that has shifted in meaning quite dramatically over time. We can imagine the Ku Klux Klansman who's beating up black people and erecting crosses on their lawn. We can say, yeah, that's what we mean by a racist. Or we can imagine the high school teacher who teaches to kill a mockingbird and is hounded out of her high school because she used a, a novel that has got bad words in it, and that's racist. And uh, not only should she be fired, but apparently she shouldn't be allowed to raise children. And whatever children she has should be confiscated from her. That dystopian thought, I think, will have ramifications. So who determines the bigotry? What kind of test do you have to endure? Are we in a situation as well? It seems like the case I gave earlier where child custody services come in would occur after the abuse has already occurred, right? Or where people are concerned about that. Your scenario, I assume, would be at some prior date. In other words, look, we found out that you're pregnant and we've got to determine whether you're the kind of person that should be allowed to raise this kid. And if you don't pass the tests, we're taking the kid away. And so I wonder about the administration of that stuff. There's as well a question about the best interest of the child. We've got to compare what things would be like being raised by, let's say, the bigoted parent versus going into a system administered by the state. It might very well be that you wouldn't be well off raised by your racist parent, but that you'd be much worse off being rendered an orphan while the state tries to find you custody parents. Maybe you'll enjoy all sorts of bigotry and pressures from them. I wonder what do the outcomes look like for kids that were adopted or have been raised by others? Do they do as well as kids who are raised by logical parents? If on average, and it seems like you've got a bit of a probabilistic account here, it turns out that adoptive kids do worse, then you might think that occasionally a bigot's going to raise kids and they'll be bad for that kid. But on average, it's better to have the biological parents do it. And maybe there's only exceptional cases when you disrupt that. I forgot what you were talking about at the very beginning of what you were saying. Could you, can you remember? Let me just think about it. So at the beginning, you were talking about how the definition of racism has shifted over time. Yeah. At least with respect to the first set of concerns that you raised about who gets to decide who the strong racist, sexist, homophobes are. I think there are two sorts of uh, tools that I suspect a lot of people would think are reasonable to use in determining whether somebody is objectionably intolerant. So first, whether somebody has been successfully sued for employment discrimination on the basis of said arbitrary characteristic, that gives us a really good reason to think that 
the individual in question is objectionably intolerant. Also, his membership in an association that makes itself known to be objectionably intolerant. The example that I use in a paper that I write about these issues is the Westboro Baptist Church, which, for those who do not know, is a Baptist church in the United States that is notorious for picketing the funerals of American soldiers because they fought for a country that is tolerant of homosexuality things like that. And then additionally, I do think that we should consult social scientific tools that are empirically efficacious. So for instance, in the 1980s, Hudson and Ricketts developed the Index for Homophobia or Index of Homophobia, which is a questionnaire that is used to predict the extent to which an individual is homophobic. And I think it was something like it predicted cross-culturally with 98% accuracy how homophobic an individual is. And so somebody who scores high on the index for homophobia, we have good reason to think that they are strongly homophobic and therefore a red flag when it comes to raising children. So that addresses the first set of concerns that you had, but then toward the end, you had a second set of concerns. I've got three objections for you. The first one is, it seems like all you've considered are the interests of the child and the interests of the parent. And you said the interests of the parent don't really matter. It's the interests of the child that matter. I wonder if there's a third factor that matters that is not interest-based, and that is the value of the particular relationships. So that child has a relationship with that parent. And it seems like that should hold some weight. In other words, there is something about that relationship that is valuable. So that's the first question. Second question is, from an evolutionary perspective, it seems like the reason why parents have children is because they assume they're going to keep them. Now, if you remove that assumption, so if society doesn't work that way anymore, that parents could at any point lose their children after they're born, it might not make any more sense for parents to have children because it does seem like quite an investment. It's a financial investment, it's an emotional investment, and it's a physical investment. The mother's life is at risk in some way. That risk has been reduced over time. But certainly in generations past, that risk was enormous. If you go 500 years ago, I don't know what the percentages of maternal death were, but I think they were high. And there's at least a lot of pain involved, a lot of inconvenience. It would make no sense for parents to have children if children were being removed routinely. You could say that it wouldn't be routine. It would perhaps under your system, it would happen only sometimes, not that often. So that would go some way towards alleviating it. But it's still a risk and parents might say, I'm just not prepared to take that risk. And then the third question I have is, what is this right to effective care? I'm allergic to rights. I'm a utilitarian. I don't believe in these rights things. And they seem to be popping up all over the place. There's rights to effective care. There's rights that the child has. There's rights that the parents have. Then we're denying the rights that the parents have, but we're affirming the rights that the child have. And now we're adding these extra rights. I'm allergic to all of this. I'm just a utilitarian that says, all I care about is what's going to maximize society's happiness here. And it seems to me like 
there's a lot of pain and suffering that's being ignored by your system. And that's the parent's pain and suffering. And you say, I don't care about the parent's pain and suffering because they don't have a right to the child. But I agree they don't have a right to the child, but there's still a lot of pain and suffering involved. And all I care about is what is the system that's going to maximize happiness for society as a whole? I think if you're ignoring parents suffering, then there's a mistake being made here. Great. So your first objection, you're trying to suggest that in addition to the interests of the child, the interests of the parent, we might also recognize that the parent-child relationship is like valuable in itself and that is worthy of protection or something like that. I think that it is, but also just because a relationship is valuable doesn't mean that you're entitled for the character of that relationship to be such that you have the authority to control every aspect of the other party of the relationships. So that's my short response to that. Your second objection, you suggested that evolutionarily speaking, people have children because they assume that they're going to be able to keep their children. And so it might be the case that people don't have as many children because they feel as though their ability to be able to raise the child that they have is risked by the state instituting a parental licensing scheme. So there's like the flippant answer that I could give, which is good, because I think that not as many people as there are having children should be having children. I think that imposing those kinds of risks will make the people who do choose to have a child, it will incentivize them to actually do well when they do have the child and have the opportunity to raise the child. And since for me here, I'm primarily concerned with the welfare of children, it seems like totally fine if a consequence of instituting a parental licensing scheme would be less people having children. So that's like the flippant answer, but then I guess if I'm trying to take the perspective seriously and assume that it would be a bad thing if less people were having children, I guess I would say that, as you said, depending on the kind of parental licensing scheme that's instituted, this risk is going to be higher or lower. Um, it might be prudent to institute a parental licensing scheme where the risks are lower because you're only catching like the very worst candidates for being parents. And that I think that any level of risk that is imposed by instituting a scheme like that would be justified because you're protecting the rights of children. But then moving on to your third objection, you're allergic to rights. I really hope you recover sometime soon, Jason. But I think that one reason to think that the language of rights is particularly appropriate when it comes to children is because children are effectively politically powerless. They're unable to advocate for their own interests, particularly in the early years of childhood. And uh, if we were to just tally up the pleasure and pain of everybody in society without accounting for these sorts of like power imbalances that might exist between groups of individuals, we might just end up 
benefiting majorities at the expense of minorities. And for somebody with liberal sensibilities, such as myself, and like most reasonable people, would think that people would find that particularly troublesome if we were just sacrificing the interests of a lot of children just to make their parents happier. That kind of objection applies in certain cases to utilitarianism. So let's say you've got the Nazi majority in Germany, and then you've got a few Jews. And let's say the Nazis get enormous pleasure from torturing and killing Jews, then you've got this counterexample that you're talking about. But the utilitarian says that each person counts equally. And so in the children case, you don't have this happening because you've got parent and child. Sometimes you've got two parents and multiple children. So it doesn't seem like the more powerful individuals here count more on the utilitarian calculus. It's simply a matter of numbers. So it's not clear to me at all that the objection applies here. You don't have a majority minority. It's not that parents are the majority and children are the minority, not necessarily at all. So I, I hear the objection and utilitarians do have responses to the objection, as you, I'm sure. One of the classic utilitarian responses is if we live in a society where the majority can always outrule the minority, even though someone's the majority in one particular way, they're going to be a minority in some other way. And so their well-being is at risk in that sort of society. So you don't want a society where those rules are set up, where the minority can always be trampled upon, because if you do, then everyone's going to be affected or could be affected in some way. So utilitarians think that the best consequences for society as a whole is not to undermine people's well-being in that way, just because they're part of minority and a particular instance. But I don't have to resort to that response in the child case, because in the child case, they count just as much. Yeah, I guess the concern that I would still have is that the sorts, the way that you assess the welfare of a child is like considerably different than the way that one would assess the welfare of an adult human of sound mind. I, at least it seems to me that's the case. There are many things that like children desire and that they would experience a lot of hedons if you were to allow them to engage in particular sorts of activities. But parents have reasons not to allow their children to do certain things for utility-based reasons because of potential long-term effects that are unanticipated. And obviously, I know the utilitarian could say, still say at this point that just account for those long-term effects in the utility calculus and everything should be fine. But I think that speaking in terms of rights, especially when it comes to right to effective care, by speaking in terms of rights, I think you capture the sort of long-term interests that are at stake for children when particular goods are safeguarded from them. For instance, a child, I think most people know that a child being loved by their parents is more likely to do well in life and have a high quality of welfare over the course of their life than a child who was not loved by their parents. And it seems that by talking in the language of rights to effective care, that you're basically highlighting that the sorts of harms that could befall a child if you were to not give them effective care 
would be so steep over time that like we could just understand the right to effective care in the utilitarian terms that you're partial to while still recognizing that it's a very, very important thing that children get. But then you're effectively arguing to draw, right? So you're saying your account, it captures what I want to capture, right? So <clears throat> what I'm wanting to capture is the unhappiness that will result from children who are not treated well and loved by their parents and loved in, a, in the way that's appropriate to, to raise them properly. And I want to account for that. And you're saying you also account for that through the language of rights, the right to effective care. Okay, I'm happy to accept a draw there. But what you're fundamentally ignoring is everyone else's pain and suffering, and I'm including it. So I'm including the pain and suffering of the parents, and you're not, and that's a deficiency in your account. Because on your yeah, account, they have no rights at all. But then my like response to... Like, why are we not accounting for the feelings of parents here? I think it would be appropriate to account for the feelings of parents to the extent that those feelings are reasonable. So if, for instance, there was a father who was brutally abusing his child and you took the child away from him, rightfully, and nobody thinks that in a case like that, that he should be allowed to continue raising the child. It just seems evident to me that whatever sorts of frustrations, tantrums, hissy fits the father throws after having the child taken away from him, it's not just that like they don't count as much as like the pleasures that the child would experience being raised in a different household. It's just that his frustrations do not count at all. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic to that sort of line. I so agree with you. I agree. I agree. When you've got the abusive father, it seems like, I don't fully agree. The utilitarian has to say they do count. It's just that the father's frustrations are so minimal compared with the child's harms that they count almost not at all. The difficult case for you is not the abusive father. The difficult case for you is the decent parent who, whose child gets removed because there's a better one. The, the borderline cases. Those are the difficult cases for you where we have sympathy for the parent, even though we say the child's interests are in moving and you don't account for the parent's feelings in those cases at all. And that's my problem. Yeah. So that kind of gets to a concern that a lot of people have voiced when it comes to parental licensing. And most recently, Chris Freiman, uh, in his paper against parental licensing, he talks about this, the concern about false negatives and positives. It could be the case that somebody does not pass the parental licensing test, but would have been a, an adequate parent to the child in question. And in those cases, it does seem, yeah, the pain of the parents being separated from their children does seem to count for something. But I think that at least we can mitigate the sort of ill effects associated with that along two dimensions. So the first is uh, continue protecting the rights of the biological parents, for instance, to associate with the child. And even if it's not the case that they're able to exercise global authority over the child's life, they'll be able to associate with the child, have a meaningful relationship with the child. And that's something is better than nothing sort of response to your concern there. But then additionally, I think that it's 
totally appropriate to conceive of a parental licensing scheme such that much like when people do not pass a driving a driver's exam like they get to go back to the DMV after a couple of weeks and retake the exam and apply for the license again you could come up with some sort of parental licensing system that does that it's not clear to me like i'm not a political scientist so i don't know what the specifics of such a system would look like but it seems in principle possible to me and i think having a parental licensing scheme that is sensitive to those two sorts of things that I was just talking about would address a lot of the concerns that you raise. So I've recalled what my second half of that question was. So my suggestion is to Porter, our editors, just to, I'll say what it is, and then just to edit in whatever your response is back to that section. And then I'll ask a, que a new question afterwards. So basically what it had to do with was you have a probabilistic account. So it's at the moment that you fall pregnant or you give birth to the child that you going to do the test and the question is how if we just care about the best interest of the child what the counterfactual looks like so we say we think your life's not going to go so well with this person as your parent so instead we're going to remove you from that person and put you in a foster care system or through a state system and it might very well be the case that's worse on average that adoptive that kids that are adopted lead worse lives and that it's only in the rare cases where we think that you should take away someone's kid because they're known to be an abuser. So that, that's the nub of the question is if you're looking in a forward looking manner and you're assessing the probabilities, isn't it the case that biological parents do a better job than states, state run systems? Yeah. If it's the case that like the state foster care system or something like that would be overflooded with children because of a parental licensing scheme and if it weren't for the parental licensing scheme there wouldn't be as many children without parents etc i do think that like counts as a reason to not institute a parental licensing scheme if it's the case that those sorts of outcomes are evident and i do want to clarify at this point, like what my position is about parental licensing, because while I have been, I think, taking a stronger line for the purposes of this discussion, I just want to disclose for transparency's sake. My position is that it seems like to me, there's no in principle objection not to institute a parental licensing scheme. And that when it comes to matters of public policy, there are a lot of different considerations that go into that. And so it's not my view that if a state does not institute a parental licensing scheme, that it's an unjust state or something like that. It's more so that given that these arguments exist for a parental licensing scheme and there aren't good arguments to show that uh individuals in general have rights to raise children, either biological or otherwise, that it would be permissible for the state under ordinary circumstances to institute a parental licensing scheme, and that we might have some reason to institute a parental licensing scheme. But if it actually does turn out that the sort of case that you had described is true, I think that might be close to a decisive reason not to institute a parental licensing scheme, if not a decisive reason. 
Cool. All right. So now this will be the new question that comes at the end. Would you be supportive of different ways of children being raised? So in kibbutz systems, one method that was used was to say that you can have people whose role it is to produce children, but that they have no obligations to raise those children and they're raised by the community. You find this replicated in some societies in Africa. You could imagine a brave new world system where you have no real parents, that what you try and do is you genetically create children. So you could again have a breeder class, like you've birthed the children, but that they're then sorted into various categories and then raised by professional parents. And then you avoid all the problems of the, the abusive parents. You rather treat them as it's a job. Your job is you raise kids to a certain age. You're like a teacher, but for them throughout that you don't actually need to have parents at all. Do those systems look preferable to the way things are at the moment? A pluralist when it comes to parenting, like in terms of what effective or good parenting looks like. I think that there are a lot of different parenting styles. Some people are big fans of like communal parenting. And I think that communal parenting could be good for some children. And I, I really do think that like the answer to your question hinges on a lot of empirical data of which at this point, I'm not aware. But what I will say is that, um, I do think that this idea that parents are like the primary individual that children turn to for assistance and guidance in life, I do think that to some extent, that sort of view of parenting could stand to be challenged and that such challenges would redound to the benefit of children. I think that children have a plethora of associations that they develop over the course of their childhood, be it like teachers or counselors or people like that, neighbors. And I think that recognizing that children have rights to associate with all of these different people will make it such that parenting will become a little less conventional. And I think that would be a good thing. But I do think overall that there are a lot of different ways to parent well. And depending on who the child is, certain styles of parenting are going to be better for that child. And in those cases, that should be the type of parent who raises that child, in my opinion, in a perfect world. 